Hello, and welcome to Make My Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jana Hill. And I'm Elias Rosner. And today we'd rather form the anti-mind that become a gestalt twin dark angel. Excelsior. I agree with what you said, Elias, wholeheartedly as if I was the one who wrote it. Oh, I, I wonder who wrote it this time. I was going to say this will make more sense by the end of the episode, but I don't think it will. What, forming the anti-mind to resist becoming a gestalt twin dark angel? Yeah. People will know what we mean. I don't think they'll understand it. <laughs> I guess, yeah, that's a reference to us not understanding the thing we have to talk about today. But yeah. I enjoyed not understanding it. I guess. That was a pleasure. Okay. I, you know me, I'm like, uh, I always have the wiki open while I'm reading, and I'm always cross-referencing issues and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I had a lot to do this time. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. So, we have been continuing our deep dive into The Eternals, a series no one asked us to do, and, in fact, uh, Jaina actively did not want to do, but I forced her <laughs> into it. Uh, we've been, we've been, so far, things have been pretty... You know, consistently moving forward from big story to big story. We got a little lost in the Avengers in the late 80s, early 90s. But now things get take a turn for the what the hell is going on? Where even are we? Yeah, this is the one where the continuity like runs at full speed into a tunnel painted on the side of a brick wall. Yeah, I think this is when comics really started to feel like burdened by its history as opposed to exploratory and i one can always say that but i really felt it here it the continuity feels like a burden uh and i kind of wish marvel would let characters lapse into the public domain um oh sure i wish they would let characters lab I, I i'm strongly pro public domain public domain is what makes my job easy sometimes um <laughs> licensing old paintings and shit um mm -hmm. but i i i enjoyed the uh the dense continuity of this one because i thought that the the story i mean one of them in particular was like buoyant <laughs> enough that uh having all these things coming in from every angle just like felt like uh like background radiation mm. okay and i mean i guess we can get into it right now but like um what I thought was so cool with the John Ostrander Heroes for Hire, we're talking about uh, some weird comics today, folks. Oh, yeah. Um, we are talking about uh, Heroes from Hire, uh, the 97 series, numbers 4 to 7, and um, a story that was, was it originally called Eternals the New Breed, or was it originally called New Eternals Apocalypse Now? Uh, it was originally called New Eternals Apocalypse Now, and then I think it was renamed Eternals the New Breed when it was, like, re-released or something. Whatever yeah, it is. I got thoughts about that, too. It's the same, it's the same book, but uh, both titles kind of suck. Yeah, both titles do kind of suck. Um, and that came out in February of 2000, so... Uh, Brian Bendis has not yet written the first issue of Ultimate Spider-Man. He's about to. Oh, that's a good way of, of positioning us. I was trying to figure out, I'm like, it's pre-9-11, and you could feel it, uh, but it's right on that cusp. Yeah, it's almost as close to 9-11 as you can get. Um, but it's also coming at the end of, like, 
so I I know X-Men continuity the best, and when we touch upon it later, I can position us exactly where we were in X-Men. Please and this do. is like uh but this is like the last hurrah before they're they burn everything and like Grant Morrison writes X-Men. They're about I think they declare bankruptcy around this time. Mm. So chaos reigns chaos behind reigns. the scenes. Um but I think we're covering some really interesting creators today uh, because this Heroes for Hire run was written by Mr. John Ostrander. Elias, what is your familiarity with uh, Ostrander? He is the guy who did Suicide Squad. I know I know he his name is attached to a bunch of comics. I don't think I've actually read any of them. Is it your first Ostrander today? I think. It's oh, possible boy. I've read some others, but this was the first one and... I didn't know what to expect, but it wasn't this. Um, yeah, uh, in ways, Ostrander is very, like, of a generation with, like, Simonsons and Claremont and Bronze Age stuff and Nascenti. Yeah, for sure. Uh, um, so stylistically, he's not very modern, but, um, but he's a really interesting dude in his own right. He was studying to be a Catholic priest. I don't know exactly why that stopped for him. Uh, but he got really into theater, and he was uh, studying theater and was a theater guy. And um, while this was happening, he was kind of working. He tried some underground comics. Nothing really took off until he created this character called Grimjack. And I have Grimjack in trade. I love John Ostrander. Um, what is and that's Grimjack? Like, that's like a weird, um, like grimy multiverse thing. Do you know about oh. the Chronicles of Amber? No. Uh, I think it just got options, so it's going to be a TV show or something. But Chronicles of Amber is this super dense fantasy series about um, the royal family who presides over the multiverse, and it like focuses on these feuding princes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Grimjack is where it is in the Chronicles of Amber universe is kind of ambiguous for legal reasons. But the setting operates mm. in kind of the same way, and Grimjack is more like an underground pirate thief throughout the multiverse okay interesting um and it's got like a real like late 80s vertigo vibe to it both in terms of art and tone um but uh while he's uh, working on the indie scene um he gets an opportunity to pitch to dc and he pitches to them suicide squad like you said um Mm -hmm. and i i I, we're, we're not a dc podcast suicide squad as a name had been used in dc before but the idea of, like, the Suicide Squad is a team of villains who's got bombs in their heads, uh, who can leave the prison to get years off their sentence working for Amanda Waller. Mm-hmm. That, that's all 100% Ostrander. And Amanda Waller is his creation. Um, his wife, Kim Yale, also uh, was a comics writer. And together, uh, they, after Barbara Gordon got shot, they figured out how to bring her back as Oracle, which I think might be, like, the best comics plot move a writer has ever made mm. i i mean again we're not a dc but like no. are you an oracle fan i love oracle it's another it's weird that entire era really has passed me by even <laughs> though like i read a lot of gail simone batgirl and i read secret six uh, which features Oracle, and she pops up all the time in you know the various Batman properties. But I don't think I've like read the Oracle stories that define her. 
Um, I just, just like going from the uh, shooting and paralyzing Barbara Gordon in the Killing Joke, a move that most of the people involved with later uh, regretted. And the fact that they were like, this was an out of continuity thing to begin with. And then everyone's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. It's just like uh, we all were drinking madness juice that year. I guess um, so. But looking at her and being like, what if she became like a hacker? Because and she was still operating as a superhero in her own right from a wheelchair. And like, I had never seen that before. I know Daredevil is blind and everything, but Barbara doesn't have like other senses to compensate for her uh, being paralyzed in a wheelchair. She's just like also happens to be the best hacker in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I just like that's an amazing plot move and completely like almost redeems a terrible decision. And I love that about comics where like sometimes you inherit this awful story and you can't quite ignore it. So you have to figure out how to like make something of it. Yeah. And people will often like defend Killing Joke for that. I mean, which is interesting because you're like you defend the terrible story even though the good story that came out of it was the thing that actually had a much harder job which was to take this terrible decision and then make it work kind of like to use another dc thing the death of alfred turning out some really good comics afterwards but none of those were because alfred died like that for original story, pretty terrible. City of Bane, pretty bad. Oh yeah, City of Bane was pretty bad. <laughs> pretty bad. And like the way Alfred dies in that, really, really bad. But then James uh, Tynion comes in and is like, I'm going to make this good. And then all of the other writers afterwards have done pretty good stuff with it. Yeah, I just, I love um, like it, it, the creative might it takes to like lift that story up and then other people can go running with it if you add something uh, tangible for them to grab onto. Um, the last Ostrander thing I want to mention real quick is that I am mostly familiar with him through all of this um, as he wrote most of the Star Wars, all of the readable Star Wars comics that came out in the er like prequel era early 2000s. <laughs> Was all Ostrander. And, like, a bunch of characters who show up in the movie was, were created by Ostrander for his comics. Like, um, Ayla Sakura, Her to Her. No. Blue-skinned Twi'lek lady who shows up in all the Jedi crowd scenes in those prequel movies. Uh, I didn't she pay much attention in those, in those. I was too busy rocking out to the score. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I actually think the score to Attack of the Clones is the best score John Williams ever wrote. Um... But uh, Ostrander okay. and his partner Jan Dersima were like the king and queen of Star Wars for most of the prequel era. And the comics they wrote rule. My very favorite being Star Wars Legacy, which I covered for Multiversity Comics a couple years ago. Hmm. Um, just like a lot of good Ostrander out there. Um, and he's writing today with Pasquale Ferry. Sorry, it's, this like loud thumping right above my recording. Oh, no. Well, I, I uh, I'm worried. It's I've got a big blizzard happening where I'm at, and I keep worrying that the snowplows are gonna come by and ruin my day. Mm. Yeah, I think the um, person has left. I'm literally so I record for listeners if this ends up in the episode literally underneath a staircase. <laughs> so I think like someone Harry just Potter. left. Just as Harry Potter would have podcasted. Oh God, <laughs> I'm Had afraid. I'm afraid of what that could have been. <laughs> um 
we're certainly not a Harry Potter podcast. Um, Pasquale Ferry, is that an artist who gets you excited when he shows up? No, but I don't also recoil instantly with fear. I, you know what his style looks like to me? What? Is, um, he looks like, a, like Nicktoons. Yeah. It's like more than just cartoony. It's like it's very specifically 90s cartoony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, he also, he does good work. He's, I mean, we'll be talking about him again. Uh, lit, he did some Judgment Day. Uh, oh, did, sure. He did Spider's Shadow, which we had talked about a while ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's got some great stuff. I was looking at his uh, comicsography, and it's not, like, as uh, prolific as I would have thought, because he's been around for so long. He, But, like, every time he works on something, I remember the art in it. Mm-hmm. I feel he, like he uh, did, did a a, of... a, the Sentry. Yeah, Maybe. I think he did do the Sentry. Um, I remember him as the artist on Matt Fraction Thor, which is like an okay comic, mm-hmm. but there's some groovy monsters in there. Oh yeah, I love his monster designs. Even yeah, it will we'll get into one of them. Well, that was really a villain. I like the monster designs. Here. Yeah, especially yeah, because his figure work isn't that realistic. But for superhero costume stuff, sometimes that works. Mm-hmm. Um, his Spider Man is fun <laughs> when he draws one. Um. Later in the episode, we will be talking about um, another book written by Carl Bowlers and Mike Higgins. So you told me before this episode you've never encountered Bowlers before. Uh, yeah, I don't think I have. Um, he did a bunch of stuff for Marvel in this era. Um, and um, a lot of it is um, stuff I haven't read before. But it turns out that his the place where he's left the biggest mark is on the Sonic the Hedgehog comics, which he's written like a zillion of, and he's apparently pretty well liked. Uh, the the uh, Archie comic Sonic series that ran for like 300 uh, issues or whatever. Wait, he was... Oh, yeah. He, he was wrote a big of run of that. Um, and uh, when Valiant started up again in 2012, he was the the edit one of the editors there. Rip, pour one out for Valiant. Yeah, I mean, uh, they got bad when he left, and I think those two things were related. Well, that, that and the, they've been hollowed out by a nice... Uh venture capital firm oh my god i was just reading about that happening to literally everyone and everything yep. um and then i found where i know carl bowlers from and carl bowlers wrote the emma frost miniseries from the early 2000s the ones with like the very provocative covers that you see i don't know this you don't know i feel like you'd recognize the guy it's very eye-catching in um and you always see it in comic shops I mean, I, I, we sold it pretty prominently. To the and, internet. The is, to the internet. I'm going to copy it right into the chat here, and you can tell me if you know this cover. That look familiar to you? She's got the extremely oh. round boobs, and her costume looks painted on. No. You've, but, like, I know this era. But, no, I've right. never, I don't think I've ever seen these covers. Um, well, you weren't missing much. They're pretty awful. Yeah. But, but then the thing is, if you push through that, the actual comic is really good. And this is like the Emma Frost's childhood origin story. Her relationship with her siblings is all from this. And it's well liked enough that it's being drawn from heavily in contemporary X-Men. Wow. Good on um, you, Bowlers. Yeah. So I think that's probably the Bowlers work that I know the best. And I actually recommend this comic if you can like put a brown bag over the covers. <laughs> Um, 
Don't read now, it on the train. <laughs> yeah, don't read it on the train. I used to read comics on the train, and I and I did have that problem. Um, uh, Mike Higgins is also a credited uh, uh, writer on this. Uh, Mike Higgins is like a pretty prolific Marvel editor, and he also has worked more as a letterer than almost any other thing in comics, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, he's written a bunch, but here's the thing I didn't know until I was like uh, looking at some uh, history on these guys. Carl Bowlers is a black dude, and Mike Higgins was an editor at this time, and I feel like uh, I'm seeing what's going on behind the scenes at Marvel. Like, uh, this is when a bunch of uh, black creators are about to go and create Milestone because mm. of all sorts of, like, shittiness going on in editorial in this time. Ah. Uh, I don't um, really know a lot of these stories. Uh, yeah, I guess this the, is just... A, the, we're, we're getting to, like, my tween teen years here. Yeah, we're, we're reaching that point where I'm just too like i'm just too young to be experiencing it and you're in the middle of it instead of us both being either way out of it or it being contemporary enough that we remember it yeah this is just gonna be that weird zone for me i think this is that happened when we started annihilation because those 2006 comics were 2006 as hell oh yeah oh man and these are um, not really as 90s as I thought they were going to be. I credit Ostrander with that a lot. He, uh, he writes very coherent plots, even if everything else was a little insane. Yeah. You know, I, I got to agree. Uh, we'll, um, we'll get into that later. Yeah, shortly. I just want to touch upon one last creator before mm. we uh, maybe take a break and then come back, credit everybody, and get to talking about these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but the last story we're talking about today is drawn by Joe Bennett. Uh, what do we want to say about Joe Bennett, Elias? Well, he was a longtime Marvel artist. Uh, he also was one of the main artists on, on 52, uh, along with Keith Giffins, who did the breakdowns, but on every issue. But Joe Bennett was one of the primary, uh, I guess, inkers on that. But he was, he, I mean, most people would know him at this point for his run on Immortal Hulk, where he turned out some career best work uh, and also career <laughs> ending, uh, it's not a gaffe, choices. No, uh, yeah. He, uh, yeah, we've talked beliefs. about it before, uh, but he, Marvelous cut ties with him. His political beliefs are pretty odious. Uh, and he's shared some, he shared a bunch of political cartoons, put stuff into his work. Um, yeah, not, not great. Yeah. I feel like people always let them come out of the woodwork to defend, uh, people when they're disgusting and people don't want to be around them anymore. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like I most assuredly, uh, does this guy like hate Jewish people and sneak that into his works to make other anti-Semites feel good. That is yeah. Like, that is, yeah. that is like a well-recorded phenomenon. Um, and like you said, career best work with Immortal Hulk. I like love his art, where his art goes. It's interesting here because I forgot that Joe Bennett's like one of the classic late 90s, like post-Liefeld. Uh, he's coming in around the same time as like um, uh, Salvador La Roca. Mm. And you can kind of see how this is part of the same art movement as that, right? Yes. Yes, I can. And, uh, um, oh, what's his face? Why am I blanking on... I, I keep 
reaching back to, to the, the Batman of that era, but I can't remember the artist on those issues. Uh, yeah, but the, there people are jumping between Marvel and DC a lot right now. Yeah. And, and there's like a very... Uh, extreme style in these last <laughs> in final days we talked about that in great detail last episode um i didn't love bennett's art in this i quite like bennett's art in general and um i didn't find any secret anti-semitic messages in this one i mean i guess there's some arguably some pretty bad themes that we'll get into anyway but um oh yeah yeah we just uh wanted to give the uh the disclaimer that uh yeah we know that bennett did some shitty stuff now we're going to talk about comics he drew <laughs> and but before we do that we're going to take a short break hello podcast listeners we're the hosts of the dc3 cast i'm zach i'm vince and i'm brian each week we discuss most of the new releases from dc comics focusing mainly on rebirth wildstorm and young animal we also look at the news of the week discuss the film and television adaptations of dc material and dig into industry rumors. We've also had a number of DC creators on our show, like Scott Snyder, Jim Lee, Christopher Priest, Steve Orlando, and Joshua Williamson. So, if you like Borat jokes, no no life. Life. bad to end the Dio impressions, this is bad, what the f***? And an in-depth look at DC each week, join us every Wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Come get Jurgens with us. Welcome back. Get ready. Because we're going to be hiring ourselves out to become heroes. Yeah! <laughs> That's how these issues make you feel, huh? <laughs> that is that is how these issues make me feel. Uh, a little loopy and uh, zero self-consciousness. Kind of that, like, uh, post-skateboarding pre-energy drink time? Yeah! Pop collars and uh, frosted tips. Uh, uh, let, let's get on with the credits before it starts spiraling. Yeah. Um, so these issues, they were the Heroes for Hire issues were written by John Ostrander. And then the uh, I'm just going to call it New Apocalypse uh, was written by Call Bowlers and Mike Higgins. Uh, Heroes for Hire was penciled by Pascal Ferry. Uh, whereas the other one was penciled by Joe Bennett. Heroes for Hire was inked by Jamie Mendoza, uh, and then New Eternals' Scott Hanna. The colorists were Joe Rosas on Heroes for Hire and John Callis on uh, New Eternals, and then there was lettered by Jonathan Babcock on the Heroes for Hire issues and Benchmark by uh, for the New Eternals. I had to guess who the colorist and the letterer was for... Uh, Eternals, the new Eternals Apocalypse Now, new Apocalypse, yeah, Apocalypse Now. God, that title's so bad. Uh, because <laughs> the colorist and letterer are credited together, so maybe they both did both. Um, but I know that John Callis has continued to be a, a colorist, even today. You'll see his name on stuff. No idea who Benchmark could be. Probably one of those um, pen names given to, to studios where you know maybe three or four people did it. Or they're all just working under the same banner. Uh, kind of like uh, And World Design. It's not one person. Yeah. And I, I can think of a bunch if I rack my brain, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I was so, like, where do we start? I mean, like, uh, we'll start with Heroes for Hire. Um, I thought these issues were a blast. I thought they were stupid and fun. Okay. I guess I, here's where I, I want to start. I agree with your second part. Continue. Uh, 
Um, here's where we should start, is, uh, we haven't talked a lot about Heroes for Hire before. Uh, what's your feelings on these characters and, like, that, that notion of Heroes for Hire? I like the idea. Uh, I'm all, I enjoy the, the, the buddy dynamic between Iron Fist and, uh, Power Man, uh, now going by just Luke Cage. The rest of the team I could take or leave. Really don't care about almost any of them. Dane Whitman kind of sucks. I've never really liked Dane Whitman. Uh, amazingly, Cy Spurrier kind of made me care about him recently. But uh, actually, oddly, the Avenger stuff we read with Dane Whitman was compelling. But I still think he's a bit of a, a chump that should have walked off in that <laughs> portal and never showed up again. <laughs> I mean, uh, you're reading him straight to filth, and I, I can't... Where's the lie? Everything <laughs> you're saying is right on about Dan Whitman. I love him from um, Captain Britain and the MI-13. Mm-hmm. Just, like, they re- that really um, uh, walks that perfect line of him as a broody anti-hero, but he's not, like, pe- a petulant, whining dork. Well, I guess what that one does is it makes him be in love in, like, a really relatable way. Like, in an earnest way instead of the soap opera bullshit of the Avengers. Yeah, and I feel like Dane Whitman is like a... Because Heroes for Hire is supposed to be grounded, street-level characters, and that's where Dane Whitman usually ends up. You say that, but these issues were anything but grounded or street-level. <laughs> I guess that's true, but all the, the team is. Um, Heroes for Hire is my favorite mar- like Marvel group. I, I've gone hard for X-Men and Guardians of the Galaxy, but like... Danny and Luke are my favorite duo. I love Misty and Colleen. Um, love me some Heroes for Hire. And I just like liked hanging out with them. One of these issues was a random one that I remember having as a little kid. Oh, really? Which yeah. Which one? Uh, the, the last Heroes for Hire issue today, I remember reading. Wild. I mean, of um, these four, that one works the best on its own. Yeah, 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 because of uh, it's a crossover with another property that we've talked about on this show. What? Um, yeah, but yeah. So I'm I'm going over my book notes. Notes, notes. So well, let let let's get started. The first well, we issue. Did, we, mm-hmm. we forgot to mention one character. Okay, we'll oh. get started. But we forgot. There's one character that we didn't talk about. But you know what? I'll talk about her like when the time comes. Yeah, we we can get to her first. I want to talk about Orca and his stupid like face talons. Yeah, how do those talons make you feel? They make me feel scared and uncomfortable, and I I hate everything about his design here. Uh, (laughs) It is everything of the 90s I do not like. There are pouches. His muscles are just like he has logs tied to his shoulders. Uh, He's always drooling. And how does he see? How does he not poke an eye out? With those tusks? With those tusks. They go around his face. There are two above his eyes, two to the side of his eyes, four pointing into his mouth, and one on his chin. I I feel like this is like that time when we were reading Nova and his costume got all pointy. And it's just like, if he leans to pick up something, he's going to stab himself. Yeah. So he's there in one panel, and I have not gotten over it. I've been staring at it this entire episode, and it was the only <laughs> image that like was seared into my brain as I read all of these. Um, yeah. Why was he fighting? Would... Why were they fighting him? <laughs> I didn't well, read the sh- previous issue. <laughs> uh, yeah, nor did I for this. Um, 
So our Heroes for Hire, including Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Black Knight, and White Tiger, are just like fighting this weird smorgasbord of villains on um, the Intrepid. Oh yeah, the they even John Ostrander even is like, "Hi, I'm your friendly neighborhood narrator here to uh, super '90s up this description of the Intrepid." It was super '90s, but he was just like, "If you're if you're really from New York, that he spelled it all weird, you could skip this box." Yeah, which I thought was, and I I thought that was fun. Yeah, that, that was that felt like um. Some you know like some Marvel showy Marvel uh, hucksterism, yeah, yeah. Um, and what I liked about the, okay, so here's the perfect example of what I'm talking about: Orca, Shockwave, who I have no idea who this Shockwave person is, um, Killer Shrike, who just like FYI, I love Killer Shrike. Killer Shrike is one of those stupid villains like Blastar, who I just love. How often does she um, show up? Killer Shrike? Uh huh. I think you're thinking of, and then Whiplash is uh, the one I think you're looking at. Uh, maybe. Um, this is not the same Whiplash as from the MCU. I, I figured as much. That Whiplash is a little bit more um, disheveled. Um, Killer Strike was like a replacement for Vulture in the 90s in Spider-Man a bunch. Oh, is this the person that, that um, Dane Whitman is fighting in the splash page? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Um... I just, yeah, he's got blades, he's got little laser beams, he's like a real 90s little bitch, and I love him. Um, <laughs> and then, like, later in this same issue, um, the UFOs show up to party? Yeah! With, uh, um, who is this, the controller? And the controller's a classic Iron Man villain. Have we seen the controller before? I think maybe the controller briefly showed up in, uh, Modox 11. Oh... He but looks, yeah, mostly he looks like a vulture. A controller is like a way underrated villain. He's he his power is mind control, which we all know is scary. Purple man is scary. Yeah, yeah. But the way he does mind control is he takes these like weird frisbees and he sticks them to the back of people's necks, and that's what controls them. God. And yeah, and he's this like wrinkly, scary guy who's always sitting in a pitch black room in like a weird throne where he can see through everybody's eyes that he's controlling. Mm-hmm. He's way scary. I don't know why uh, people don't make more of controller. I think because he's also kind of silly, and right now silly is out even as it should be in. Wild. Yeah. I didn't know it was out, but I'm, I, I know I'm not that cool. <laughs> silly is out friendship ended well yeah friendship i know is out i i know that i'm probably pretty chuggy <laughs> i've been told um but here's what i was thinking is mm -hmm. in the earlier issues of eternals if we had scenes like this we're just like a bunch of villains showed up to terrorize a museum and then the superheroes came up to fight them mm-hmm it would have just been like, uh, oh, it's some little green goblin guys or yeah, aliens from outer space or whatever. And here mm. it's just like this wacky team of villains pulled from every which way, some of whom I know, some of whom I don't. And it doesn't really matter. And it's just like, this is just the Marvel Universe every day. It's this like world of adventure where all, there's always villains scheming and there's always heroes undermining them. Mm. And um, there's a lot of scheming. Well, and I just like that uh, all of these stories feel like they're happening on top of each other. And even our heroes aren't, like, totally up to date with, like, what the UFOs are up to. But when True. you're Luke Cage and you run into Ironclad, you gotta fight him. 
Yep. Very much a punch first, ask questions later type of deal. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely getting into this in the middle of the series. Uh, The Master of the World shows up. Do you know the Master of the World, Elias? No, who is this guy? Okay, so the first time I noticed him was in um, Mark Wade's Champions. Okay. One of the better arcs of that is the champions have to team up to fight the master of the world who's building, like, an evil Arctic base, which is what he mostly likes to do. Oh, that was... Yes. Okay, I remember that storyline. Yeah, you remember that? So that's this guy. Same guy. Uh-huh. And, um... And it's... And it's his... And then I, you know, I was like, from... From, uh champions i was like where is what's this guy's deal so i looked it up he was a john byrne creation and he first appeared in um alpha flights and he's kind of a classic alpha flight villain okay and um he's basically marvel vandal savage and canadian he is an ancient caveman who's just been like biding his time to take over the world uh okay and where is he now in the marvel universe i was wondering it turns out he found his way to Weird World, and he's currently the master of Weird World, and that freaking rules. Did that happen in the, like, very short-lived Weird World series? Yeah, with that gorgeous art, but inscrutable writing. Yeah. Yeah, at the end by the end of that, he was made the ruler of all of Weird Worlds. Oh. Also, earlier when I said he looked the controller looked like a vulture, I meant master of the world <laughs> in his stupid helmet. Yeah, stupid helmet here. He's his look now is uh is cool. Mike Del Mundo gave him a new look. Good. Well, Mike Mel- Mike Del Mundo can can design anything to look cool. Yeah, he sure can. Um, but yeah, it's like uh, we're we're going from like villain fight to villain fight, and there's like a million overlapping um agendas. Yeah. Do we want to position us in the Eternals and then also in the larger Marvel universe where we are because we're in an interesting time at this point. How do you figure? Well, considering last time we were reading the Avengers, we were on the verge of Onslaught, and now we are still in the middle of Onslaught, but right before Heroes Reborn, uh, which the Avengers were gone, the Fantastic Four was gone. It's kind of like that uh, all-new, all-different era when right after Secret Wars, where there was a lot of change and then things started coming back after like a year and a half, two years. And we've but, actually, we read the uh, Thunderbolts from this era. We read the first arc. We have. We read the Thunderbolts from this era. So, I don't know. What What do you think people need to know about the weird interstitial area and also what the hell Onslaught was? Oh, so, um, Onslaught, <laughs> get ready for this? This is the first time I'm going to uh, say this in relation to the plot on this episode. Onslaught Ooh. is a gestalt being. Yes. Formed yes. when Professor X tried to wipe Magneto's brain of all thoughts and memories, and that act was so anathema to poor Charles that they created this, they, the, the two of them were daddy and daddy to a terrible psychic beast called Onslaught. Um, this is the product of a million retcons, but currently Beautiful. that is uh, what Onslaught is. Oh, and, what um, was it originally? Just like originally, it was Professor X corrupted by it. Was like Magneto's soul had entered Professor X while when he wiped the mind, it had to go somewhere, and it went into Professor X. And um, his mental powers and Magneto's like rage is what was Onslaught, but it was oh. Professor X in that huge purple armor. It was oh. supposed to be okay. That was the original intention. 
Interesting. Um, it it gets real. Yeah, it gets real wiggle like wobbly. Yeah, um, I mean the visual here is of a weird robot with claws and then way too big forearms. Yeah, that's what Onslaught looks like, and he kind of looks like Magneto too. He's got like a Magneto helmet. Yeah, the purple and the red. Yeah, the purple and the red, and his head head looks like if Magneto's helmet didn't have a head in it, just two little eyes. Mm. Um. Yeah, and uh, the end of Ons Onslaught involved. Um, they took all the Marvel heroes that they were like nobody likes these guys anyway, and they threw them at Onslaught, and they all died. Um, but not really. They were actually on Counter Earth on the other side of the sun. It's not a big deal. God. God. Um, weren't they and, sold? Um, weren't those the characters that were sold or, or farmed out to another company? Like the Joe Casada, Wildstorm. There were a bunch of books. Rob Liefeld drew one, and then that whole the thing imploded, and so they brought him back in. Uh, well, Wildstorm was a more, was a DC associated thing, not a Marvel. Um, but there was a bunch of attempts like that. But no, this was um, the Avengers. There hadn't been Avengers movies. Nobody liked the Avengers in 1997. Um, I could see so why. Like, Let, let's just kill off the Avengers. Let's kill off the Fantastic Four. They killed off. The, let's kill off the Hulk. Really? Um, well, except Hulk doesn't stay dead. Remember that, that was the first Thunderbolts issue we read. Oh, you're right. Um. And um, they also kill off Doctor Doom for good measure. Hmm. Um, and the idea was like let's let's like come up with a bunch of new superheroes and superhero teams and concepts and like uh, give some life back to this. And that's where Thunderbolts happens. Thunderbolts is the most successful of those new ideas. For sure. <laughs> um. I think Kurt so, Busiek had a lot to do with that. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, and I I think um. Busick, Ostrander, Wade all contributed good stuff in this era. Mm. So um, this series is in a it basically in direct response to that. Like yeah, the... well, I think mm-hmm. based on the timing, it must be coming out shortly after Onslaught. Mm. Okay. Um, help me figure out where the hell we are in Eternals continuity now. Okay, so issue four basically tells us where the Black Knight had been, or at least gives us enough of an information because we're finally going to reintroduce Cersei. So last we saw, they walked off into their portal because uh, Cersei was infected with the Mad Weary and was going to kill everyone with her madness. (laughs) Real uh, Scarlet Witch of a move. Yeah, really? They really like doing that to, to, to female witches here. The the profound the sexism like baked into the Marvel Foundation is like impossible to ever escape from. Well, yeah, been dragged out for a, for a century. Yeah, and these these issues don't do don't do much to uh, rectify any of that. But he was no sir. We didn't read uh, the one shot where a lot of this stuff apparently happened, uh, but he was stuck in a vortex, I guess, with Exodus, and they were falling through time. I was uh, shocked to see Exodus. Yeah. And I don't know if anything actually happens in that or if it's just, you know, the Black Knight and Cersei falling through time. We really haven't been following Cersei's adventures uh, because she does so much on her own that's outside of the context of the Eternals. And that was one more. But apparently they got separated and the 
big deal Gan-Josen bond that they had was sundered and severed, and now Dane is back, and he does he's feeling guilty, as you do, and then Cersei shows up. Yay! Yeah, I, I wasn't like, uh, seeing Cersei didn't rock my world. I was like, oh, hey, Cersei, you're back. You were, Are you still crazy a little bit? Maybe. We don't know. We're not going to address it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Most of this is like heroes for hire stuff. Uh, until uh, they all find out that Cersei was actually brought down into Lemuria. And, oh, okay. This is, this is where things start getting complicated you think <laughs> complicated for the eternals too right okay i know what you're god. referring to now god how do we even so uh we missed a whole bunch of issues because this is referring to continuity of the various characters as they did individual adventures instead of eternals related stuff so like you don't really need any of the backstory gar is back and he's a giant metal statue yeah why not I, uh gower however the hell you were supposed to say it um is uh well so i was looking into this actually a bunch of this is like continuity errors a bunch of this was no one editing or writing this read the previous stuff that we read oh yeah for sure um, the Herod Factor, where uh, a bunch of this, these concepts first showed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the twins come back. <laughs> um, oh boy, the twins. Yeah, so the twins are like a huge continuity albatross around everybody's neck, but this is where it has like no connection. They're younger, right? I'm not crazy. Yeah, they look younger. Um. The entire events of the Herod Factor are basically ignored because everyone's still worshipping Gaur, Gar, um, instead of, you know, the crazy wild, I don't know, like, not Dickensian, Jacobian Ooh. onslaught of, uh, ferv- of revolutionary fervor that we had seen. Uh, but then Crow sort of took his position back at the top, but that's not true here anymore. Again, Gar it, Gower is living in a giant metal statue of himself uh, after having previously come back from being killed as the Dreaming Celestial during the Battle for the Serpent Crown, which I think happened in the original Atlantis Attacks issues, but he was already back from... Stuff that had happened in the Evolutionary War, which was another crossover that happened in a bunch of annuals. This is where my brain started to fracture trying to figure out what was going on. What did we actually need to read? What was important? And like what kind of mattered to the Eternal stuff? I don't think any of it really does. I I want to put two characters. uh, I actually I disagree, but I want to put two characters next to each other in this. Okay. Um, on the one hand, I got Gower, <laughs> and on the other hand, we got this this iteration of White Tiger. Oh. Um. Explain. I. So like I was like this isn't uh, the usual. Uh, what's the usual White Tiger's name in Marvel? I don't know. I don't actually know the character. Um. 
Oh my god, I searched the... You're like, do you mean the animal? I'm like, of course not. I mean, um, Ava Ayala is the one who most people know as White Tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, she, like, is kind of... There was a couple years where she was, like, Miles Morales supporting cast, and she's been in a bunch of, like, cartoons and stuff. Oh, okay. And aren't they making... No, they're making an Echo show. Yes. Echo and White Tiger kind of feel like they have similar oh. ninja vibes. Yes, um, now I recognize her. But this is not Ava Ayala in this comic, is it? No, this is someone who speaks in semi-broken English for reasons. Well, the reasons are uh, are critical. Please, I- I'm going to let you do the explanation. So it turns out that this version of White Tiger is literally a white tiger. That oh, yeah. the high evolutionary evolved into being a tiger person, like he does. <sighs> I think she was a knight of Wendigore. Mm-hmm. Your guess is as good as mine there. I'm sure the detail is either here or... Did that happen in the Evolutionary War? Because that, that was dealing with the High Evolutionary. Right. So it is my understanding that um, this version of White Tiger showed up there, but a lot of this is is a retcon. Okay. Um, God. And... Um, and and I I was like looking into it and that's crazy but like how fucking great is that she's a tiger who could think she's a lady it's great that is pretty great and Gower is a guy who does stuff he is the dullest Eternals villain even though he but, was pretty interesting in that one story but I'm like he had the the legs for that one story and then he's gone but. These issues that we read keep bringing him back as like the big bad. I'm like, why? He's yeah, he's, it's he's really not as interesting I, as the Great Toad. I I, I prefer the Great Toad. Gow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gower is just he's got like this like generic evil wizard warlord kind of thing going on. Yeah, he's got a fun design. Yeah, it's all it's all right. It doesn't like light my world on fire or anything. Um, and he's always got like nebulous motivations, except in this one actually. Now, I take it back. In this one, his motivations are cool. Mm, I prefer his his motivations from the first one. Because <laughs> well, it felt more comic... like the character. This is just, he. they needed someone to stand in, and because the writers actually finally understood that Crow is cool, it couldn't yeah. be Crow. Um, and so is Carcass. Carcass is cool. Carcass. Um, but, I okay, so I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but there is a, a a calculation that's always in the back of my head when I'm reading superhero comics. Okay. That I call uh, the gorillas with jetpacks quotient. Okay. The uh, GWJQ. Uh, uh, and um, mm-hmm. and gorillas with jetpacks is when like you just do the most maximal silly version of the thing because comics. <laughs> okay. I see like where you're um. Going. Mm-hmm. So, like having having the um, Flash fight a mad scientist, fine. Having the Flash fight a mad scientist who's a super intelligent gorilla, amazing. Giving that gorilla a jetpack, even better. Right? Okay, gotcha. So mm-hmm. having White Tiger be an actual tiger, incredible. And the gorilla with the jetpacks quotient here was high because Guar is trying to um, create the anti mind. Now, by the end of the story, I don't really get what the anti mind is. I think I I think I know what it is. 
And What's, what is the difference between the anti-mind and the unimind? No, it's just the unimind, but with deviance. Um, that's all it is. Right. And that's a great idea. That's like a, an ob- that seems like such an obvious story choice to make. For, to yeah. Me. And apparently he says deviance <laughs> and eternals, but I think that's just because he's like, I need your powers to keep it stable or whatever. I don't know. But specifically deviance. Uh, also, I I just, my brain explodes every time they say that only Eternals can achieve such a union. We've seen humans enter this. We've seen Deviants enter it. We've seen Reject enter the Unimind. Maybe maybe Karen Gillan fixes this when we get there. I'll have to keep an eye out. Maybe. Um, but, yeah, so, like, uh, Ajax is here somehow he got realived after getting killed la- or after sacrificing himself and getting exploded to molecules last time uh a- ajax shows up where i, I thought don't... i saw ajax in there uh, oh yes he is he's just kind of oh is that ajax or is that like the silhouette of his friend uh Jack or whatever that they that he introduced because they accidentally killed ajax off yeah, isn't that the most Eternals question you could possibly ask? Yeah. Um, but just like uh, every, even if by the end of this, the anti-mind wasn't the most fun villain thing in the story, that's such a great story setup. And guess when they uh, encounter the anti-mind again? When? Never! No yeah. one's picked up the thread. And that's having the deviants have this like unstable version of all their thoughts coming together is like a cool I don't know that's a, that's the most interesting pitch I've ever heard for an eternal story. It is cool. I think they needed they specifically needed the Eternals' energies though to have it happen. Like that that is very explicit at one point they're like cuz they need to merge Cersei and Fina's mind and then it drags everyone else in and Yeah. Um, but this should well, have made her have the mad weary. Because thematically, I think that's kind of connected to the twins, because the Unimind and the Antimind and Onslaught are all gestalt beings mm-hmm. of uh, people coming together and combining. And this is where the uh, Dark Angel retcon officially happens, which we started, we talked about a little bit last time. Do you remember? I do. But I don't um, know what it is. Well, so the twins have been aged down, and last time when they formed their gestalt being form, it was um, just like a big drooling monster, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and now they're turning into yes. like a cool angel who, um, and I think later uh, they, they mention uh, this is their final form. <laughs> You've not even seen my final form. Yeah, I wrote just like Sephiroth, who is also sort of a gestalt angel, uh, dark angel, but he's made of triplets. Hmm. Which came out um, first, the... this or this or Final Fantasy VII? You know what? Uh. FF7's definitely out in Japan at this point, and I think it came out in the States just around now. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's funny. Hmm. Um, but, but like, all these, uh, if the Eternals combine with the Deviants, then you'll have a stable anti-mind, and if the Twins combine with each other because they're half Eternal and half Deviant, they'll become the Dark Age. Just, like, all of these weird, like, mixing and matching people's brains to form various Gestalt entities is kind of a cool shtick for a superhero story. I guess. I was less enthused. I think I was just like, 
tired by the end of this. It was a lot all happening at once, plus the Heroes for Hire stuff on top. It's- well, and so the last thing I got to say about the Heroes for Hire stuff is um, number seven is the issue that I remember reading as a kid. I barely remember it. Um, but Scott Lang shows up. Yeah, he does. He just appears. Um, well, I, I love when Scott Lang shows up, but actually he's been there all along, just like waiting to make his presence known. Gets me every time. Everybody take a drink. Hmm. Was the... What was it called? Are, I'm, I'm looking are we about to talk about my, my best friend? Your best friend? Are we about to talk about... um? Uh, Ignatz, my best friend. Oh, maybe. But first, can we can we just mention that I would read a comic called Crow's Commandos in a heartbeat? Yes. I yeah. We're gonna come back to this. Yeah. All right. Who is this Ignatz, and why is Ignatz your friend? Ignatz is apparently a deviant who is like a pterodactyl dude who is like the size of a fingernail. Ooh. Well, I don't remember Ignatz. Why don't I remember? Sh- oh yes, there's Ignatz. Yeah, that's Ignatz. one of the deviants. He he and he because he's really small. He teams up with Ant Man and they do wacky shit together. I love Ignatz. Ignatz is amazing. Does so Ignatz like, last past this issue? So then I'm like, where can I get more Ignatz? Nowhere. This is his only ah. appearance. They he's a cute little pterodactyl deviants. monster. Yeah, he can crawl around. He's super tiny. He's like a spies on you. I love Ignatz. He's so should he be on Crow's Commandos? He should. Um. But uh, in this issue, this, I did get a little tired by the end of this. Um, Cassie Lang is here, and the Thunderbolts show up. Mm, Thunderbolts. You're not excited about the Thunderbolts? No, I am. I guess I was Are... just. <sighs> Like, like, like what I was saying, I, I was just starting to get a little tired and I think Ostrander just lost some of the fun subtlety of the Thunderbolts. Like everyone just, I think this was a problem just with Ostrander's writing here that I didn't like. It's very talky. And it's talky and it's hitting like a critical mass of ideas crashing into each other. Yeah. And there's not a lot of differentiation in the voices not as much as i wanted mm-hmm. uh so by the end i'm like there's so many characters and so much is going on and and just throwing ideas at the wall and then i read these thunderbolts who we've read from the same era in a different book i'm like these don't feel like the same people i mean they are and they feel personality wise like the same people but i read them and they feel a little bit more stock and like they that's do. fine but and, I, and also, I, where I they start to lose me is like, okay, so Cassie Lang gets sucked into the super adaptoid. Everybody take a drink. Cassie Lang's in danger. <laughs> and then doesn't get to do anything. And then doesn't get to do anything. And she's like merging in with a gestalt super adaptoid form. Another gestalt. Woo! Um, and the Thunderbolts show up because they want the super adaptoid. So now you have to know the premise of the Thunderbolts, that they're villains pretending to be heroes, and they're trying to trick the heroes. Uh-huh. And you kind of have to understand the super adaptoid is like a robot who can steal everybody's powers who fights the Fantastic Four sometimes. Yep. Um, And also we have the Heroes for Hire stuff and the Eternal stuff, which we've been talking about at great length. And then also they, um, the Heroes for Hire are being managed by Jim Hammond's The Original Human Torch from the 1940s. Mm. And 
and Jim Hammond is familiar with Citizen V and Baron Zemo. So you got to know all this Captain America continuity stuff too to get why that's like an interesting conversation. When he's yeah. trying to sniff Zemo out as being a bad guy. It took me it took me a while to figure out who Jim Hammond was and then I was like, "Oh, right." Yeah, so he would have been in World War II with Zemo's dad. And fighting. that whole thing him returning was uh, we we tangentially touched on it in I think one of the earlier Avengers issues because they were talking Captain America was talking with Namor about the original Human Torch not being who they thought it was like there was a whole retcon thing to allow Jim Hammond to show back up in modern day. I don't yeah. know what it is. I don't remember any of the details, but like we did encounter like part one of this retcon of him coming back way back when but, but this is where like i see it both ways because it's fun that he's using every tool in the toolbox it's fun that the captain america continuity and the fantastic four and the thunderbolts and the eternals are all crashing into each other to make a story but it's not much of a story it's pretty thin yeah it's it's um, just a lot of good things happening but then as like these thin stories go i was i wrote biff bow comics like <laughs> <laughs> um, teaming up with a guy to save his daughter who's getting absorbed by a robot which is trying to be stolen by uh, superheroes who are really villains. That's good shit. Mm-hmm. And I can never say that I was bored by any of these issues. I was frequently annoyed by <laughs> the era's proclivities and, you know, turned off by the, the art style. But, you know, that's fine. That's That's how it goes. Not everything works out. I think the coloring i do want to talk about the coloring really quickly yeah. because it's a good mix of these early late 90s early 2000s digital coloring like the digital flat coloring yeah. um i don't think it works quite as well as like whatever will start to happen in the next few years especially over in like detective comics like i think that's the pinnacle of the of this era's approach to digital coloring well, nice and, and simple the... dual like just ranges of reds and blues nice and nice pretty not just like a wall of color and it feels you know flat but this has a good level of shading to it i i think it's also got to do with um fairy's art like just looks like a cartoon and it's shaded like a cartoon yeah a lot of nice um, lines <laughs> and it looks like American cartoons, but increasingly this style is going to get more anime-esque. Inter yeah, <laughs> it's going to get more anime-esque, and it's going to start losing a lot of the physical attributes. So right now you can see a lot of cross-hatching to do t that it's filling in shadows and detailing on a lot of this art. That's going to increasingly fall out of fashion and just be replaced with solid blocks of... Uh, you know, black and the and or using color to shade. So I don't know. Artists are doing that. less and less of the cross hatching. I, I now that you mention it, I'm noticing it, but that's cool. I didn't uh, pick that, pick up on that. Yeah, it's we it's it's so cool getting to see this happen, and also frustrating to hit the eras where they're trying to figure it out. Well, this is why I'm having such a nice time. Um, just like only focusing on a team that I don't like. It's really fun to watch the style evolve. Mm. True, true. You know, 
I don't really have much more else to say about the Heroes for Hire stuff. Um, and I think we we probably should move on to New Eternals Apocalypse now. Uh, you have a sure have a tone to your voice, sir. I wanted to like it. I wanted, wanted to, to like, like it? it when I first was reading it. The first few pages, I was like, "Oh, this is this is nice." Joe Bennett's art and Scott Hanna's inking, good stuff. Yeah, looks real nice. Yeah, uh, John Callis completely fucked up the coloring because um, Carcass is green. Oh, yeah, Carcass isn't supposed to be like that. Uh, and we know th- I know that this was not even like a choice because later in the thing, uh, I don't remember if it was ransack aka reject or someone else is is mentioning the the big red and he's clearly colored green <laughs> I that's didn't a major that oversight yeah that's very funny um but the, the opening of this does ball when uh just like apocalypse shows up in all his grandeur and steals a nuclear submarine and you're like hell yeah yeah and we don't even know it's apocalypse for a bit we just see oh this nuclear sub suddenly attacks Lemuria as uh, the uh, revolution against Gar continues. This time without Crow, it's just uh, Carcass and and Reject now in his John Carter of Mars getup. Yeah, and oh my god, did I love the Deviants in this? This has been my most fun time with the Deviants. Yeah, which is saying something. Um. It's also sad because the deviants totally uh, get murdered here like a million times. Yeah, but they... like that's why we like the deviants because they suffer. Yeah, their their cities are always getting flooded. Uh, just, why why does Gar have to be there? And why why does yeah. Cart why does Reject have to be our main focal character? Fuck fucking um, ransack. Yeah, give me ransack. Him. I'll take Reject over. Uh, Icarus any day. Yeah, but would you take him over Carcass? I wouldn't take anyone over Carcass. Carcass is my best friend. Right? Well, no, Carcass is my second best friend. My best friend is Ignatz. <laughs> Ignatz and, the, and then Carcass. But no, Carcass should have been the focus here, not not Ransack, but he gets the most screen time, or page time, uh, and it, it annoys me. Um, I cannot dispute that. It's pretty annoying. But, um... But yeah, once once Apocalypse like makes him his presence known as the villain of this, mm-hmm. I I felt like a, a I'm trying to put it into words like a switch was flipped and the whole thing kind of crashed and burned, like it ground mm-hmm. to a halt and became overly complicated. That also was happening, but I love the idea of the Eternals fighting Apocalypse, who is the more popular character who lives forever this is true he, and apparently he, they have history like i think we've seen him show up in the background of some of some eternals comics and whatnot um, i i look into this so actually um actually not we've never seen apocalypse interact with the eternals i thought he so was far. in one of the like the splash pages when they went to egypt and one of the early early like not kirby um when was Apocalypse created, actually? Apocalypse... Maybe I'm wrong. Oh my god, you don't know about this? Apocalypse's first appearance in uh, X-Factor number four or five, maybe six, like one of the earlier X-Factor issues, 
um, appears as a guy in a trench coat and a fedora at a ski lodge. <laughs> and apparently he was going to be the daredevil villain, the owl. Oh, interesting. And so in his first appearance, he's kind of drawn to be the owl, like in disguise. And then um, when they couldn't use the owl, they just made up Apocalypse. That's wild. Yeah, and then they just kept on yes-anding their own idea until it turned into the guy we know. Wow. Okay. It is wild. Yeah. And Apocalypse in contemporary comics, where we are now, is like a super mega star. Everyone loves Big A. Mm-hmm. Right? Do you love Apocalypse now? Yeah. Current Apocalypse is a really compelling character. He hasn't been around for a bit, but even still, his shadow is, is, is felt. My, um, yeah, just like every X-Men comic you pick up, you're like, oh boy, is this the one where Apocalypse is going to return? I love that guy. And he doesn't have the stupid blue lips anymore. At least not in the way that they show up here. Oh, yeah, in the 90s, that was cranked up to a zillion. I think that was because of the uh, Fox cartoon. Oh, that would do it. Um, but like, have the Eternals contend with Dracula, another immortal if the story of the Eternals is about immortality, then turn to all the immortal Marvel characters. Mm-hmm. I think um, that, yeah. So you're right that Apocalypse got boring and complicated, but this story really got me back to basics of why, when I was a kid, I was so impressed by Apocalypse as a villain. Oh, why? I watched that X-Men cartoon in the early 90s and had all the action figures and stuff. But, um... Where most most villains are trying to, uh, most villains are using force to try to like subdue the world into their agenda or whatever. Yeah. And uh, the controller who we touched upon earlier, like he does mind control to get them. That's scary. And Guar, I don't know, tries to form the anti mind and is a big bully. <laughs> But Apocalypse's thing is he puts you through these, like, torturous machines where you'd come out on the other side as an evil version of yourself who's loyal to Apocalypse. Mm. And uh, the the body horror of, like, the way he's tearing these characters apart and reassembling them. Mm -hmm. And the... The the brain... The, like, flawless brainwashing. Everybody who gets, like, transformed by Apocalypse... Um, struggles to like refine their sense of self who's not just devoted to Apocalypse and that's so much scarier I don't know of another Marvel villain who like is quite that horror-y actually mm. right like uh, Angel is his first major victim in the comics and he like captures him and turns him into Archangel and then he, you know he's blue and evil and wants to bring him out into the world for a while oh you're right yeah 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 and he turns Gambit and Wolverine into his uh, horsemen at different points. That is pretty scary. Yeah, just like uh, and and that's it. If you if Apocalypse can uh, put you into his machine, you will become a monster who loves him. And that was kind of what he was up to in this one. A little bit, yeah. Because here he was trying to uh, turn the Deviants into his mutated servants. Kind of by nuking them. Yeah, yeah, Apocalypse's yeah. Uh, motivations were never clear until now. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, it didn't um, didn't work so great there. Like you said, uh, Icarus and Apocalypse allude to their history. That confrontation has still never been depicted. Okay. 
I uh, I was reading on Reddit. I was seeing people who, who were talking about this. Wow, um, I'm shocked. I guess it's and, because they want to see Apocalypse fight someone, not Icarus. Yeah, I, I found it on a conversation about the Eternals. Ooh. Um, um, and Apocalypse, when he's having his showdown with Icarus in this, starts, like, ranting about how he's going to bring about the Age of Apocalypse, and he just, like, says all his catchphrases. Uh-huh. But he mentioned that he's going to assemble the 12 mutants. Did you catch that? Yes. Do you know about the 12? No. So uh, these issues we're reading, uh, this issue that we're reading is a one-shot, came out in uh, February of 2000. Okay. The 12 are first mentioned in Uncanny X-Men number 376, which was January 2000. Oh, okay. So this is a story that's going on right now, and it is complete nonsense. It doesn't make any sense when you're reading it, and people ignore it now. But if you were curious, the 12 are, for some reason, Bishop, Cable, Cyclops, Iceman, Magneto, Phoenix, Polaris, Professor X, Mikael Rasputin, Storm, Sunfire, and the Living Monolith. Okay. It was, right, it was just like this random list, and if he, you know, if he could, like, human sacrifice them hard enough, he'd get the special powers. It doesn't make any sense. But what's really interesting is if you go on to read the Morrison X-Men and the Whedon X-Men, um, Cyclops is dealing with the fact that he was being mind-controlled by Apocalypse and he's really traumatized in that. He mentions it a bunch of times in those books. Mm. And that is referring to the Twelve. Oh. So okay. even though this is set up for a story that everyone would rather forget, there's a really interesting Cyclops character beat that happens in there. But also, as I'm mentioning, like, they're about to say, fuck it, let Grant Morrison write X-Men. We're out of good ideas, clearly. And that's because of the not the, the unsuccess of the 12. Mm. That's so unfortunate. That just a situ- but it situates us in history, right? This is when they knew they needed to change, when these comics were coming out that we're reading now. Yeah, and this is all well past Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, the original, well, Age of Apocalypse was like a potential future where he conquers the Earth, and... For a while, his motivation was to bring that about in mm. 616. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, vaguely. Vaguely, because it was never going to happen. Um, yeah, it already had happened. It was called Age of Apocalypse, and it ripped. <laughs> All of the X-Line got canceled for a bit. Yeah. Um, like it will again a month from time of recording for Sins of Sinister. Woo! Um, so then... Um, you know, they defeat Apocalypse in, like, a big superhero punch-up. But the last page is, like, really intriguing, I found. did Were you intrigued? No. No? No. When the Eternals assemble and they're wearing the most, like, image-in-the-90s costumes ever? Oh, um, I mean, I, I do find that intriguing, but I, I did not want to read that story. The which is amazing, because I'm like, I'd like to read more Eternals. <laughs> I guess... This whole time, all I could think was, who were all these new Eternals? Yeah, there's How a bunch did of them come that never show be? up again. Yeah, because the the implication of every other Eternal story was that back in the eighties, all of the Eternals on Earth got together, and then everyone who remained were like the five people we saw in Olympia, and then the rest fucked off to space. 
And these people are like, oh yeah, I was hiding over here for 300 years, or over here for 150 years. I haven't seen you in two centuries. I'm like, why? Why? Who are these people? Well, you don't I, do to much this... to characterize them. This is the, the Icarus and uh, Virago show. Um, well, th- this brings me back to the very beginning of our conversation about these stories, because what's Marvel trying to do right now, they're trying to come up with new ideas for superhero teams to replace their, uh, their fallow ideas. Mm. And I hate the name, the new breed. It like grosses me out and I don't like saying it or hearing it. Yeah. And but... a lot of the, this comic falls back on original Eternals nastiness. Yeah, like eugenic stuff, but now it's the late 90s, so we're talking about actual genetics mm-hmm. and mixing that in. Yeah. Um, But I walked out of this being like, you know what? And here's here's the thing that intrigued me the most. We got a bunch of Eternals, uh, new and old, are assembling, and they're kind of going to swear, they, and they're going to form a superhero team. And Ransack is on this team. Yeah, why couldn't it have been Carcass? Um, I'm not going to let that go. No, I mean, Carcass getting uh, blown apart by Apocalypse, like, broke my heart. Yeah. But, oh, but like, I like getting my heart broken. But just, not I think like it's this. so cool that there's going to be a new superhero team, and their thing is a little bit like the Thunderbolts. They're going to keep all their mythological origins secret, and they're going to try to save people and be like a team. And the Eternals and the Deviants are, like, not going to fight anymore. They're going to work together to form, like, a new thing. I guess. I don't know. I just... Carcass... Not Carcass. Continue. Mm -hmm. I would rather read the book that I just described than what we're going to read next time. Yeah. Yeah. I think... Well, Ransack... The reason I'm like... Not really, because Ransack has always been, like, the outcast. He's... He threw in with the Eternals... Like he's not represent. If if Crow was on the team, I think there would be more of a. You know. I hear. It. Yeah, I, yeah, I I agree with that. But there was time, just like uh, the Eternals and the Deviants, putting aside their war to be in this new Marvel universe where the Thunderbolts are bigger than the Avengers. That's mm-hmm. that's the comic that I I could have read that could have made the Eternals into something with stickiness that like fits in the universe and doesn't feel like its own little parallel track. True. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of fully completes the circle that Jack Kirby had started them on as the book was starting to sell less and less of turning them from his big, weird mythology stuff into just generic superheroes. And we did it. We've come full circle. They're generic superheroes now. Well, it's not going to stick. No. Because um, next time we are going to be reading a proper Eternal series again. Yeah. Um, We are going to be reading the Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. Eternal series. Issues 1 through 7. It was a limited series. And we're going to be jumping forward half a decade. Yeah. And at this point, Neil Gaiman is already like the Sandman superstar. He's won a zillion awards. He's the hottest shit in comics, maybe even uh, starting to get passe. And Hmm. he is going to... Have you read these before, Elias? I have not. I'm excited. I have heard bad things about this series. Oh, he's already uh, written Marvel 1602, which was a real banger. Um, Really popular when it came out, too. But... um, 
yeah, he's going to game it up these Eternals like you would not believe. And we're also going to, for the first time on this podcast, going to really get a chance to talk about John Romita Jr. Yay. I know um, you're you're less excited than I am. I'm excited to do this. I'm excited just because I'm going to tell everyone how much I don't like John Romita Jr.'s art. You you mean you don't like nice square face man? Uh, he is not nice. He is not man. He is not square. No, all of his characters uh, they're nice square face man. Yeah, they all are. Well, I agree to disagree. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we're going to be reading Eternals Volume Three by Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. Uh, number one to seven. Yeah, and we might, probably won't, almost certainly won't, because I don't know if I'll be able to track these issues down, talk about the the Eternal, or maybe it was the the Eternals, the Max series, way out of continuity, by Chuck Austin, which is reviled. Uh, It's so reviled that, in fact... The issues do not exist on Marvel Unlimited. They are not available digitally. They have never been collected. Maybe it did once, but it's been so long out of print. Um, so I uh, I might have access to those issues, and I will tell you about that off mic. Yeah, I uh, I don't think we're going to, but know that there was another series. It happened in this time. Maybe if uh, we want to subject ourselves to something truly heinous, we will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch upon it. I'm not going to closely read all six issues, but just as like a historical note, I'll I'll uh, come prepared to talk about it. But yeah, we're not uh, intending to read that along, along with that. Yeah. But now we're reaching more accessible comics. <laughs> yeah, it's about to turn around, I think. Yeah. But in between then and now, where can they find you on the larger interwebs, Jaina? I'd... Folks can find me writing for multiversitycomics.com, a pretty great website where I mostly talk about X-Men and sometimes other stuff too, and I do weekly reviews. I'm an occasional contributor to Comic Book Herald. I have a Twitter account at rambling underscore moose, but I haven't been on it since a long time ago. And I have a Tumblr, which I go on a little bit more frequently, which is ramblingmoose.tumblr.com, which uh, I guess you could come check out and say, hey, I would say hey back. And uh, yourself, Elias, where could folks find you? They can find me... uh... At multiversitycomics.com, I'm writing there. I do uh, managerial stuff. Uh, you can, if you want to message me, uh, you can email me at erosner at multiversitycomics.com. Uh, I do have a Twitter. It is at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. I don't know how long that's going to stay active because I never really liked Twitter. And uh, now I've got perfect excuses to finally shut it down. Excelsior. <laughs>